Welcome to Emil Franzink's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And a very pleasant good Saturday afternoon to you, for us anyway. I'm oh, Harry Alexander. Oh, it's cloudy out. That's nice. Yeah, Bunker de France over here. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It's a show about the Old West, in case you had some questions. Uh, or you weren't paying attention. Or not paying attention. <laughs> <clears throat> kind of like some Congress people who don't know their history, or well, you know, I don't call well, them congressmen well, anymore. I call Congress them Congress critters. dummies, Con- Congress dummies, Congress critters, <laughs> big time <laughs> Congress critters. Yeah. All right, so we've got us a great, great, I think, great program. How great? Really great. How great is how great is, is it as great as I think it's great? It's gonna be really really great. Well, we, we got great guests and I we know. got great topics. And, That's right. Yeah, okay. We have uh, with us on the horn is um, Stuart Rosebrook from True West Magazine. He is an editor there. We also have on senior the, editor, senior editor. That's right. He got the the, top duck in the pond. He got uh, got promoted. Kicked upstairs, and, big we've, duck, and, big we've, duck. and we've also got on the other line a uh, guy from Hollywood who's our co-host, Todd Roberts. Is he there? He, both of them are here. Say hello to each other, gentlemen. Todd. Hello. Stuart, Bunker, Harry. <laughs> howdy, howdy, howdy. Uh, this is this is going to be a hooter. <laughs> all right, our topic for today, and the reason we've got all these... Uh, and guess what? There's no liquor. No. Uh, uh, not, yeah, you tell us another uh, one. Maybe not where you are. <laughs> California is not a dry state, yeah. and I know your house is not a dry house. Oh, it certainly is not. <laughs> oh, did Hunter, did don't Harry, believe all the lies Harry told you. He was well, he, trying to make you jealous for not coming. Well, you know, he, he said he tried to drink all your liquor, and he I realized can't. that he'd be a dead man by the end yeah. of the day if he, if he, if he, you know. There's there no way. There's an ocean. Well, in that, I didn't want to touch the, I, would, I knew were $100 bottles of whiskey and rum and whatnot, so. Oh, no, you, no you, you, you take an old milk bottle, yeah, fill I, it up, I know what and you then, do. You, then you take some but, but water see, and put it in the bottle. And, but you see, I'm, I'm a good guest, so. Yeah. Mm. Anywho. <laughs> The topic for today's program is something that is uh, near and dear to uh, our two guests, as well as to uh, Mr. DeFrance, and it's near and dear to me as well. We're going to talk about Monty Walsh, the very first Monty Walsh, uh, put out in 1970, stars Lee Marvin, Jack Palance, and a whole cast of other characters, and uh, Todd's dad, Bobby Roberts, is the man who produced this uh, this show uh, or this movie along with uh, the other guy. Thank you. Uh, and uh, so we're going to get all kinds of cool perspectives. And this topic was, cho- I've been trying to get Stuart back on the show for a long time. And so we finally had an idea that, or uh, a free date. And so I said, okay, pick a topic. And he said, Marty Walsh and Lee Marvin. Why was that, Stuart? Uh, it's probably one of my <clears throat> favorite westerns, but it's also in that era when we're all talking about this year, The Wild Bunch, True Grit, and Butch and Sundance. It's a film I think gets overlooked. It was a small film with a big cast, a lot like Junior Bonner, uh, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and directors and producers like 
you know, like Bobby Roberts, um, everyone was looking for good scripts and films they could go on location and bring a, a sense of realism in filmmaking that was happening in that, in that era. And um, I was telling Todd earlier today that, from my perspective, there is not a better cowboy movie. Uh, you can argue, as Todd and I discussed, Red River, mm-hmm. close to others, a television miniseries. But as a film about the American cowboy, I put it at the top of the bullet. It's number one. Well, you know, you're, you're very right, because one of the things that's so unique about this, this was what, like a pet topic of Peckinpah, was that the passing of not the not the cowboy himself, but the passing of that type of cowboy, that open range cowboy, the you know the old school cowboy, and I don't think any film. I love Will Penny, but no film has I think really touched on it. And you know the humor, and yet the sadness that was there. You know the, the passing of the passing of an era. Yeah, I think you know you can put Ride the High Country in there, you know, in the top five, yeah. along with Whip Penny. Um, but uh, I think that everything comes together on this film from, I think, casting, locations, the cinematography. Uh, it's it's a painting on film. It's really, uh, and you can tell how the production team and the producers were inspired by the artwork of uh, uh, Charlie Let Russell. Yeah, Charlie Russell. Yes, on the titles. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, and you can tell that the way they, the production, the the the, the costuming, um, it's uh, the details. You, you every time I watch it, there's something new um, I see and and uh, and enjoy. Yeah, and Fraker had the eye for it too. He really he really saw it like it should be seen. Well, you know, there's uh, did you get to know the cinematographer? Or did, how did your dad choose the help hire Fraker and the cinematographer. Well, I'll, I'll jump in right there. Uh, Fraker had been uh, the cinematographer on Paint Your Wagon with Marvin, and I think he did, I'm trying to remember, but I think he did another, and Marvin was really impressed with him and recommended him uh and it was, that was his first directorial uh, performance as a director. And I'll tell you what, you can't get much better than that. We lost Todd there for a moment, but he's back. Stuart, repeat the question, please. Yeah, uh, Todd, I was wanted to know how your father, uh, it sounds like maybe he, he knew Marvin very well. How did he hire Bill Fraker and David Walsh? Did, uh, did he have a strong hand in the hiring of both of them? Well, yeah, Fraker... Uh, Fraker had uh, been the cinematographer on Bullet, which maybe was my father's favorite film. Hmm. And so the car chase uh, was, you know, something, honestly, in my family was very iconic. Um, You know, it's something my dad talked about all the time, my older brother talked about, I talked about, even though, you know, I was seven years old. Um, And it was something that just meant a lot to to us and my dad loved the the eye of Fraker in that respect just like he loved Conrad Hall and um, mm-hmm. uh, a few other great cinematographers in, including David Walsh who was the cinematographer on Monty Walsh um, 
David Walsh went on to do the cinematography for um, Silver Streak, amongst many other films. He was a very prolific cinematographer. Um, yeah. and I just want to step in here real quick. It was said earlier that Franker was the director of Bingy Wagon. He was the director of photography. And yes. I think that that's yeah. why. So yeah. Bobby Byrne, who we were talking about earlier, Mike, Mike <clears throat> Joe Byrne, who was my dad's partner, Bobby Byrne was famous, <clears throat> famously the cameraman inside the car in the bullet chase scene. And I know just watched Bonnie Walsh and noticed Bobby Byrne's credit at the end. So it sounds like, yeah. you know. Well, and Fraker also was, yeah, Fraker was, uh, Fraker was uh, in, in the car. He was in a box on the corner of the car. Uh, he he and Burns both did cinematography in that film of uh, Bullet. And my dad and really... Well, Bobby was, uh, uh, not ahead. Bobby, but uh, uh, he was the operator for Fraker. Right. Yeah, he was. He was. But Franker also sat backwards in oh, the yeah. front of the in the front seat of the car in the passenger seat. He sat backwards with his back to the dashboard and got some footage. Yeah. But they also that's what, built up. Yeah, that's where Bobby Byrne and he put him right in there. Yeah, and Franker did some of that footage as well. He also built a box on the corner of the car, <laughs> a plywood box, hmm. and bolted it to the car and Fraker had a handheld camera and he shot in that also uh, in in some scenes not in the bullet car but the other car yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had the pleasure so, working for but both Fraker was also the um, Fraker Fraker was a client of my father and Hal Landers they also um, were sometimes were managers of talent which also included uh, Fraker, Lee J. Cobb, and some other people, because my dad also was a was a manager, a talent manager over the years. So um, somebody that they shared together, Hal Landers and Bobby Roberts, was uh, was uh, Fraker and Lee J. Cobb. They both shared him. Let me throw well, something out there. The cinematographer, I think, okay. is beautiful in Monty Walsh, and really one of the things that stands up um, throughout throughout, you know, since 1970. It's truly um, one of my favorite parts, favorite aspects of that film, and very reflective of how directors were using light in that era for Westerns. It wasn't overly saturated like an MGM picture. Really, mm -hmm. I love the natural light of the desert. Well, Let me, uh, let me throw a question out of both of you. Yes. You know, this is, this is something that it is always a kind of on my mind when I think about pictures but there was in Monty Walsh and in the John Ford pictures there's always this melancholy and the melancholy isn't necessarily uh, in the story, it's in the way the story is being filmed and told and I would like for both of you gentlemen to kind of enlighten me in a way as to what your feelings are as to the resemblance of Ford and Fraker and the movies that Ford made and, of course, Monty Walsh. Todd, you go first. Well, I would say that uh, it's a great question, and it's and I think it's right on. The There was a very tremendous amount of melancholy, and one of the first times you really see it, or it really is glaring to me, is when 
the the marshal comes walking up the street in the rain and he's in that yellow slicker and the sky is gray the ground's mud and and it's so dark but that yellow slicker is almost like a big yellow light bulb Mm -hmm. and as he comes walking up the street and he finds uh of course matt clark uh, uh and uh he finds uh, Matt Clark and the other guy and then Shorty in that bar and they shoot him and kill him and that's why they end up on the run. But that's one of those scenes that's, you know, you don't know why it's melancholy, but it's a it's preemptive of the death of that marshal. And honestly, the, the ending of the, these guys, you know, their life, or should I say Shorty being part of the gang of fellas. You know, he's already been fired, but he has no way to go back after that. He can't go back to Cowboy and He's going to be on the run for the rest of his life. And that's, it's kind of a preemptive uh, melancholiness to it in a lot of ways. Stuart, your take? I, I would echo that, Todd. I would echo that. And also, I say it starts also from really good writing. Ford and um, Traker, your dad, Bobby, um, Bobby Roberts, understood good writing. And um, these filmmakers had seen a lot in their own lives, and it influenced um, what they wrote about. Um, and you can see that uh, Jack reflects Jack Schaefer's own life and growing up, um, and uh, you know the, the changing of the season. I think that a lot of these film directors understood in their own lives all the changes that happened since the Depression and World War II. Uh, the changes happening in the country at the time. And they were able to use this genre to reflect, reflect you know, real life and um, the, heart, the heart, heartbreaks of life as well as humor. Max Evan talks a lot about that in his writing. And I think that Jack Schaefer uh, mm-hmm. obviously um, brings that across in his novels. And, and the adaptation by, the author, by Lucas Heller and David Goodman really captures that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up Schaefer because I, t- I, I read Money Walsh before I ever saw the movie. And it was, I thought, one of the greatest Western novels ever written, uh, much better than Shane. And I love Shane, but uh, there's, you're right. And also just to, on, the, on that topic of the melancholy, the scene where Monty and or Marvin and Palance meet up with Jim Davis and he's being rehired and Davis is telling him that he no longer owns the ranch that he's he's managing in it and that that kind of sets the ball rolling for everything that happens after that it's that and but Eddie that is one of the saddest scenes in the movie well it's also where uh, my dad got two lines that he said a thousand times to us as in our family uh, when he was trying to be funny he'd say damn accounts you know <laughs> anything that, because Monty says that yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and they're like well what do you mean Who, who'd, who'd you sell it to he said uh, oh, I sold it to a, 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 a big con- conglomerate out of the east uh, uh, and Chet's like well, what's a conglomerate <laughs> basically, it's just a bunch of accounts. <laughs> and Monty, from then on, walks around going, everything that goes wrong, anytime anything's off, damn accountants. 
And, you know, they become his, his punching bag, his rag doll from that point on. And my dad would say that to us, you know, uh, uh, if, you know, he went somewhere and he forgot his glasses, he'd say, damn accountants, <laughs> nice. you know. And uh, he also would say uh, in in later in the film after he he busts the Bronx uh, the the Roan um, and the guy puts the Buffalo Bill jacket on him and tries to get him to be in the Wild West show and he looks at himself in the mirror and he finally says he's got the bottle of whiskey and he's drinking it and he says uh, you know what no and he takes it off and the guy says what are you doing. You're going to make a lot of money. He goes, I ain't spitting on my life. So my dad walked around throughout the rest of his life at many crossroads at Mm. different times in his life and business and so on and would say to me, you know, I'd say, well, Dad, why aren't we going to do this or that? Or what happened? Why did you change your mind? He'd say, Dad, I ain't spitting on my life. I'm just, I'm not doing it. We're up at the first uh, I was going to say, we are up at the first uh, opportunity for a commercial break. You are listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm going to put you guys in the queue so you can hear what in the world is going on whilst uh, we do our... Yeah, our, I ain't our spitting com- on our commercial. Uh, we ain't no, no, no spitting on our commercials. Uh, we are talking with Todd Roberts and Stuart Rosebrook. Stuart is the senior editor at uh, True West Magazine. Todd is um, uh, our Hollywood insider, and uh, his dad is uh, the one of the producers for the 1970... Well, actually, he did both of them, but uh, we're talking about the 1970 version of Marty Walsh with uh, Lee Marvin, Jack Palance, and... Uh, variety of others with that in mind we have to do our first commercial break so hang on we'll be back right after these very 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 important messages Emil Franzi's Voices of the West will be right back. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, Call 304-8300. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. 
Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Tom, the host of the Movie Zealots podcast, and I'm inviting you to give the Movie Zealots podcast a listen. Every episode, my co-hosts and I review the latest box office releases, but there's more than simply just that. We also play games like the Alexa quote of the show and may the odds be ever in your favor and have a from the cutting room floor segment that is an open forum to discuss anything from our thoughts of a Netflix TV series to our experiences with movie subscriptions such as the AMC Stubs or MoviePass. So, after finishing this podcast, please give the Movie Zealots podcast a listen. We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Simply search Movie Zealots. Until then, that's a wrap. Read classic Western comics anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net. Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. The lovely tones there of Mama Cass Elliot, and uh, she did the title there uh, to Marty Walsh. Good times are coming. And before that, uh, heading into the commercial, a little bit of stacking feet there from uh, the Marty Walsh soundtrack. We are talking with senior editor from True West magazine, Stuart Rosebrook, and our Hollywood insider, Todd Roberts. We're talking about the 1970 version of the great film Amadi Walsh starring Lee Marvin. And, uh, and Jack Palance. And Jack Palance and a cast of many, many other. De France was even in it. Yes, I was. You know, I'll, let me give a quick rundown on the cast because every one of these guys, I, I swear, and Todd can tell us, but I think every one of these guys was handpicked. Of course, Marvin and Palance, Jean Moreau. Mitch Ryan, who I stood in and doubled for, Jim Davis, G.D. Spradlin, John Bear Hudkins, the godfather of the stuntmen, Ray Guth, John McKee, Michael Conrad, Tom Heaton, Ted Gehring, Bo Hopkins, John McIllen, Alan Ann McLeary, Matt Clark, Billy Greenbush, Charles Tyner, Jack Collins, Guy Wilkerson, Roy Barcroft, Dick Farnsworth, Leroy Johnson, and that's the most of them. And I want to throw in a name there, too, uh, which I'm, I'm sure you gentlemen probably not familiar with. And that's a fellow, a gentleman named Bud Stout, who was a, a New Mexico cowboy. And the first day on the show of Monty Walsh, Lee came on the set. And the first thing that he said was, are there any Marines here? And Bud's not not a most spoke, uh outspoken fellow, but he, he said, yeah, I, I, I was in the Marine Corps. Well, when Lee found out uh, Bud's backstory, Bud had been uh, at Bataan, was on the Bataan Death March, ended up in the, the uh, concentration camp over Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. Lee Marvin fell in love with Bud Stout. Bud stood in for him on the picture all the way through. And I've got another story for another time about Lee and Bud, but uh, just a little homage to Bud Stout and Lee Marvin and the Marine that Marvin was. Well, I think that that's the theme you were talking about, John Ford, earlier and the melancholy of, of their films. Is that is the company of men in honor 
between men and mm-hmm. loyalty. You know, that's something that Sam Peckinpah investigated a lot. <clears throat> I think Jack Schaefer writes about it a lot in his novels. And I think that that's something that you see with Ford and Marvin, of course, uh, was very attuned to that. And this push-me-pull-me between the man's world of cowboying, separate from civilization, and that boyhood that, you know, trying to hold on to that uh, where Jack Palance becomes the hardware man. I think that's mm-hmm. a theme that Ford and Sam and, and obviously um, Jack Schaefer and Bill Frank are investigating this film. And there is that melancholy of, what are we going to do? What, you know, where's our life going? Uh, this is all I know. I don't want to go to town and become a hardware man. I, that's, mm-hmm. uh, to me, that, that comes back to one of my favorite scenes, which is Palance and Marvin... Um, sitting on the bench together. Uh, one of my favorites of all time in any mm. film. It's the unspoken code. Yeah. Well, well you know, there's... it's also, it's it's a universal theme because you also, you know, if you think about uh, The Magnificent Seven with Steve McQueen, you know, when he's looking for a job, he poking around town and he meets Yul uh, uh, Brenner and the three Mexican peasants in the bar and he says, "You find any work?" He says, "Yeah, I, I, I've been gotten an offer as a first-rate Cracker Jack clerk at a <laughs> mercantile store. Yeah. You know, and that's basically what they're going. That's that's their alternative, or they go back. That's what happens to Rufus. <laughs> is he goes bad with Shorty and and the other guy." Well, you know, there's a there's a line in there, and I think it's in the scene that Stewart's talking about, and it's uh, Jack Palance's line. He says, "Nobody gets to be a cowboy forever, Marty." And then there's the other right. the other the other line, which is, "I like it, of course. Marriage is a call." This is John Maru's line. Let me skip that one. Let me find that other line here. Well, the line that you're talking about, it, it, no one's a cowboy forever. My wife uses that on me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some, someday you have to grow up. I know. Well, but Alex, I don't want to. Palance was also, a, I think that's the other thing between the two of them. Palance and um, Marvin were both veterans wounded in, wounded in action. And... Um, one of the things I caught today in rewatching the film was a very poignant um, character who was a veteran of the Civil War. Who, you know, oh. uh, he can all he can do is work the fence, and you know, ends yeah, right up fighting Joe crazy Hooker. And kills himself. Fighting Joe, Joe Hooker. Hooker. Fighting yeah. Joe Hooker. Yeah. Fighting Joe Hooker. John McEllum, yeah. great, a great job there. There's a story connected with that too. The morning that they were getting ready to shoot that, uh, we're all early morning call because it's an early morning shot, and we're all sitting there by the honey wagon. The uh, stretch out comes out, Marvin gets out, and he's, you know, hey everybody, and he's like, and everybody's, oh, this is going to be a good day. He's in a good mood. Bear Hutchins <laughs> getting there, and he says, we'll be home a little afternoon. 
And everybody goes, what do you mean? He says, we won't shoot today. Well, I'm standing in for McGillum. I'm down the hill. They get ready to shoot. The wagon comes up, and Marvin, uh, Talence is driving, Martin's sitting next to him. And they do a couple run through, and they say, all right, let's shoot it. They come up. They get up there. Uh, Palin says his first line, and Marvin gets off the wagon, walks away. And sure enough, we, we he went home early, and we didn't do anything. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, is the next day, and again, this it shows you the character of Marvin. He comes up to Bud, and I'm, I'm just I'm just the fly on the wall there, and he says, "I want to explain something." He says, "You know." He says, I was out last night, and I, I do that quite often. He says, but this morning, it really showed. He says, now, when you look up there on the screen, and it's my face, and if it looks as bad as it looked, he says, that's not good for me, and it's not good for the picture. He says, that's why I did it. Wow. Wow. Well, he, you know, he was a, he was a consummate professional. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. I- Todd, I have a question for you. You said you spent the summer down there um, running around the back lot of of old Tucson, but I think you told me over drinks once about um, the town they built for the film, a lot like Ford building Fordville at Monument Valley. Yeah, Um, Mescal. Mescal is what it's called. Actually, it was Harmony when they built it. Harmony, but uh, it's now now known as Mescal. And it actually yeah. blew down. When, they, when my dad built they didn't even have a name. And then later, it was then they named it Harmony. And then it was washed away or there was a fire or something. And then, and now, like I say, it's called uh, uh, Mescal. Well, you know, in the so movie, the, the town was called Harmony. Is it, yeah. Now, I know they also filmed an Empire Ranch, but where they, is the Harmony, Mescal, that town they built, is it down there near the, the Mustang Mountains where they also filmed... No. Red River, or was it's that over, a separate location? It's been up by the little Rincons in Happy Valley. Actually, originally, when they first went there, that whole area was called Happy Valley. Yeah. And it was part of the empire at one time. It's probably about 40, 45 miles or so from the Empire Ranch Ranch House. Uh, where uh, due north, uh, due north, where Mescal is. Uh, as close as town is Benson, really. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they you know, they, you could watch the film, and there's, there's the Empire Ranch, there's the Mustangs where they filmed Red River. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was part of the. If you're a fan of westerns, you're watching it, and you're you're reconnected to it. No different than films uh, made up in Monument Valley and Kanab. You're reconnected to these locations, which you know you're familiar with, but the way they do it, they seem new. Mm-hmm. And um, I, the editing is very well done. And um, um, I think one of the locations is a is a dude ranch that you can stay at today, the Circle Z. Do you know if the horses at Great Bermuda was from uh, Circle Z? Uh, Circle Z. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't. They didn't get down to Circle Z. What was that? Yeah, it's an echo, but it's not good. I don't know who's echo. <laughs> In any event, uh, 
we're going to do another whilst we figure this out. I'll put you guys back in the queue here, and we will uh, figure out what the devil is going on, which probably is nothing. Um, but, you know, those telephone, those telephone gizmos and gremlins and whatnot. We are talking with uh, Stuart Rosebrook. He is the editor at uh, True West Magazine, and Todd Roberts uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Todd's father, Bobby Roberts, is the producer of uh, both Monty Walsh pictures, but we're talking about the 1971, the very first one, that starred Lee Marvin, Jack Palance, and a variety of other good folk. We've got to take a break, and uh, we'll be back with much more on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West right after these important messages. Voices of the West will be right back. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Paul Ash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Paul Ash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club is one of the best-kept economic secrets in town. This 900-member group maintains one of the finest shotgun shooting ranges in the country, featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and sporting clays fields, and hosts national and international events that bring thousands of people and millions of dollars into our community. The Spring Satellite Grand American Tournament alone involves 1,200 participants for 10 days. Learn more about this and their other contributions to our community at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year, we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right, it's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. 
your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Colonel Wilson's my name. Honey Walsh. I'm uh, looking for someone to take over from a bronco rider. He's getting a little moss grown. I pay him 30 a week on all expenses. You'll have enough put by to get a place of your own in a couple of years. How would you like to be Texas Jack Butler, star cowboy, bronco buster, and all-around wild man of the West? Bonnie Walsh will do. But it won't do, Mr. Walsh. It won't do at all. Texas Jack Butler's a long-established name. It's got history, pedigree. Who is Texas Jack Butler? Oh, he was a nice fella. He'd come from Joplin, Missouri. Got run down by a streetcar in Chicago about six months ago. He couldn't ride a horse worth a damn, but he put on a hell of a good show. What do you say, son? 30 a week and... and all expenses. So I'm Texas Jack Butler. Fine, son, fine. That's a deal. Come on in, son, and let's drink to your joining. Boy, I sure could use a drink. Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It's a Saturday. That's when this uh, program happens. And the podcast, of course, you can listen to anytime you feel like it. Anytime. Anytime. You can find our podcasts on our website, voicesofthewest.net. And you can also find them at, uh, let's see, Stitcher.com, at Spotify.com, at Apple, Apple Music or iTunes. You can find it on Google Play. By golly, you can find it anywhere good podcasts are located. All over the place. Well, got it right. Well, you know that fellow that did the bit there with Legion? That mm-hmm. was a gentleman named Eric Christmas. He played Colonel Wilson. We are talking with um, editor from True West Magazine, Stuart Rosebrook, and Todd uh, Roberts from um, Hollywood. And we're talking about Monty Walsh, the very first one, 1970. And if you have not seen that movie... You are doing yourself a disservice. You know, Todd. You, uh, <laughs> not I've got a I've got a question for you. Well, wait a second. Let me let me bring him back on oh, okay. on the line here so that he can hear you <laughs> or you can he can respond I'm back here. to you. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Todd. Uh, I've got a question for you. Bunker. Yeah, Todd. <laughs> I I remember very very clearly. When we were down shooting at the ranch, which was a good portion of the picture, uh, it'd look out in the afternoon, and I'd see a wrangler out there with a couple of squirts on horseback going out riding. Now, how much fun was that for you? <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, this was this this was um, the the greatest summer I've ever had. I mean, I had I can remember three really great great summers in my life. This is definitely number one. Number two was the summer we spent in Hawaii. And number three was the summer we spent in Malibu. But this one is far above the other two. Far, far, far and above the other two. I, I, you know, I got to hang out with cowboys all day. And I was with my dad. And, uh, you know, my dad kind of from an early age would ask me questions like, you know, what do you want to be, and so on. So when I got past the, you know, the early stages of wanting to be either a bus driver or a, <laughs> or an astronaut or a policeman or something, um, and he was like, well, I finally realized that what he wanted was me to work with him. So I said, well, I want to work with you in the movie business. I was about eight or nine. And he said, okay, good. 
good. So he started throwing books at me to read. And I'm reading all these different books. And um, that kind of only shaped my kind of mantra. And, you know, I uh, it had an effect on me because when I got there, you know, my dad was the boss. So I kind of ran around thinking that I was as important as he was. Uh, this is a misconception that I had throughout most of my life with my dad. And um, there was the scene, you remember, in the ravine when Shorty gets in trouble. He gets caught in the middle of the stampede. And uh, Monty and Chet run in there on their horses and bail him out. So they have that scene. And my dad's, like, looking around. I can see that he's very concerned. There's something on his mind. I don't know what it is. And he says, uh, finally, he's like, He's he, what he's trying to do is figure out where to put me because he doesn't want me. <laughs> he, he's thinking to himself, knowing my son, he'll get himself to be the real live shorty, uh, <laughs> and you know, be stuck in trouble. And so he goes off and finds uh, a spot that he can stick me in, and that 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 spot is on a camera boom, forty feet in the air. <laughs> and so he puts me up there. We're on a camera boom. I'm sitting with a cameraman, and he's filming it from above. And uh, the scene goes, and it's finished. And the horses, the last of, the, uh, of them, are trailing off down the down the ravine. And everybody, I hear cut, and so on. You know, and I and I yell out down to my dad who's standing on the ground with 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 the crew and i yell out as loud as i can it maybe took me two times i finally get his attention but his back is to me and you when as soon as i say it and he can hear it you can see his body length body language completely change he, he it's almost as if he, he he just his shoulders shrug and he He's he's almost like defeated. It's this <laughs> like oh god, please don't let that be my son. And he looks up and it's me and I'm waving to him. And he's looking at me and he's like you know he's looking at me kind of giving me the you know the hand like you know kind of suppressing you know calm down be quiet children is to be heard and you know seen and not heard relax and I go. And he's looking at me, and I go, before he can do anything, I go, great shot, Dad. Really good. And I give him a big thumbs up. And the cringe factor, I don't think you could measure it, uh, you know, with a telescope. I really don't think you could have. Well, he could not have wanted to be farther away uh, than he, anywhere on the planet would have been better than where he was at that moment when I did that because I was being something that he could not stand, which was calling attention to myself uh, and not being humble, which is the way he always was and lived a very graceful, humble life. Well, you know, I, the way I remember you there is as a very well-behaved young man. What happened? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, some, some might blame it on women, Bunker, and others might blame it on liquor. Um, I, I might blame it on both. <laughs> You know, uh, all of this talk about what happened on the set and, and the story you just told, Todd, sounds to me like it'd make a great book. What do you think, Stuart? 
Well, Todd and I are planning it. That's our big project for us. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I had to bring that up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, if you need a technical well, you, you advisor, know, Harry, I'm available. You, 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 Harry, you <laughs> could probably lead a string, lead a string of horses uh, straight to hell. Probably so. so. Uh, you're pretty good, i got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about uh, the 1970 version of Monty Walsh, starring Lee Marvin, Jack Palance, and a variety of others. And our guest is uh, True West Magazine editor Stuart Rosebrook and Todd Roberts. Uh, his dad produced both Monty Walsh pictures. Todd, you've seen both pictures, I know, and, and I suspect you probably worked somehow with your dad in the second production. Oh, Compare and contrast the two outside of the different uh, cast members, but compare and contrast the two on on the remake. Well, you know, I've always said um, that I felt that Tom Selleck's version was a valiant effort, um, and and it, it's hard to measure up to it. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think I've told the story many times um, that. Uh, Tom was putting this together with his partner Michael Brandman and they were trying to ring up, bring the cast back from uh, Crossfire Trail and uh, so he reached out to Wilford Brimley and he said, uh, Wilford we're going to make another western so you know, get your hat and get ready and he said, well what is it, what is it this time? And he said we're, I'm going to remake Monty Walsh and Wilford's uh, not someone who really minces words. He's not known as, uh, he's very mm-hmm. articulate, mm-hmm. but he's not known as somebody who, um, he's, he's definitely known as someone who has a sharp tongue. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he basically replied with, um, and I'm going to clean it up, but basically he said, uh, what gives you the right to make, remake Monty Walsh? Mm-hmm. And, um, Tom's reply was, well, I guess you're not going to be on this one. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. And, and when, I, when I met him for the first time, Wilford Grimley, I went up to him and I told him that story. And uh, he looked at me and he just, he, he never said a word. I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Todd Roberts. Um, and I heard this story that you liked my dad's film a lot. You revere it, Bonnie Walsh. And he, you know, he said, "Well, which film is that?" And I said, "Bonnie Walsh." And he said, "Oh." I said, and I introduced myself, and he said, "Uh huh." And I told him the story. I related the story I just told, and he said, he didn't say a word. He just looked at me, had a big smile on his face, and kept nodding his head. <laughs> and he shook my hand, and then he walked away. And I think that that kind of encapsulates it. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't think there was any bigger any bigger critic of the film than our fearless leader, Emil, who yeah. every yeah. time I would say that it was a valiant effort, he'd say something to me of the effect of, Tiger, what the yeah. hell's wrong with you? Yeah. Like, can't you <laughs> see the difference? Well, you know, yeah. and that that, um, beg, that begs the question that uh, Bunker and I were discussing before we came uh, went on the air, is why even remake something if we if it's accepted that it is the the project is really really good and has been really really popular why bother to do a remake are you doing it for the bucks are you doing it because you think you can improve upon it or what's the reason 
Well, I, I don't. I can't say that I know the mind of Tom Selleck, and and I, I'm uh, the last person to be critical of him based on his success. Number one, but ne- number two, he's the only guy out there other than Sam Elliott that's still doing a, a western. Every mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Well, I, I he's don't. Our only, yeah. He, he's our only source. I, I don't. So I don't, I, I don't uh, poo-poo that want, whatsoever. I'm just wondering. Uh, and, and this is in general. I'm not saying you want me to be yeah. critical, but I, I want to just preface that. The, you know, I've said this many times, Harry, and you and I talked about it over too much bourbon on a train mm. once, mm. Yes, which was that that um, Hollywood has a has a belief that um, you know, and I come from a different place, and we've talked about it many times. Mm-hmm. You know, there are only seven stories there. All stories are based on the seven Greek tragedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone wants to know what those are, any librarian at your local library can tell you, or you can look them up online. But mm-hmm. the, the basic seven tragedies are the origins of every story that we've ever seen. And Gilgamesh. I look at that, when I look at that, I say to myself, Okay, so there's only seven stories, so my responsibility as a storyteller is to tell the story the best way I can mm-hmm. in the freshest way possible. Mm-hmm. Well Hollywood, as an entity, looks up and says, um, well, there's only seven stories, so then forget it. Let's just throw the towel in and let's, let's approach it with uh, uh, sequels and spinoffs. Mm-hmm. And when we run out of sequels... Uh, will then hold on will then go Must back and important. do remakes and <laughs> yeah. uh, prequels and then yeah. we'll do remakes and and then when we run out of those we'll do remakes of remakes yeah. and then we'll and do son that's, of that's what ho- that's what Hollywood does and it's unfortunate and but they like doing that and they believe in that motto now you know um I'm not in charge of it, so it, that's the way they want to do it, and that's the way they do do it. But I think there's a lot of other ways to do it. Uh, Stuart and I have talked many times that, you know, when was the last Louis L'Amour film that was made? He wrote 132 novellas. Uh, mm-hmm. How many? When was the last time we saw a Max Brand novel? When was the mm-hmm. last time we saw mm-hmm. a Max Evans biography or one of his stories? Yes. Or, um, or um, the guy Schaefer. who... Jack Schaefer, or yeah. what was the last Zane Gray we saw? It took yeah, Ed, Harris and Amy, yeah, Ed, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan to make uh, Riders of the Purple Sage. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't Hollywood. An anecdote. <clears throat> well, I, I was just going to throw in, you know, my dad used to like to say, you know, you can only go to a great party once. And um, we were walking out of Pale Rider. This is when I was in college. And uh, I was pretty high on it. I just really enjoyed the entertainment we had just watched. And we didn't know that John Wilder was also in the audience. We're walking out there in the Sherman Oaks, walking out of the theater, and both of my dad and John Wilder shaking their heads. And I'm like, well, you know, what's wrong, guys? Why didn't you like the film? They said, you know, Eastwood just ripped off Shane. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, it was a sequel to Shane. Um, and I heard many times uh, producers and writers, you know, in Hollywood say, well, um, the current audience won't remember Shane. We can get away with doing Pale Rider because most of today's audience, they don't, they don't remember that film. 
and I they underestimate uh, the audience. I, yeah. Well, that's yeah, what they I say. All they always say that. They, yeah, they, they, they always I continually mean, say that. Guys, every we gotta, time they do a remake, like uh, 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 Magnificent Seven, that was the excuse. Nobody right. would remember it. All right, guys, we got to take well, a break. Guys, guys, hang on. We got to do our final break here, and then we can come back to this discussion. Okay. I will put you guys back into the queue there so you can hear what in the world is okay. going on. We're talking with Todd Roberts in Hollywood, and uh, I don't know where Stuart is, but uh, he's on the phone with us. Stuart Rosebrook, editor at True West Magazine. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, and uh, this is our final commercial break here. So stay tuned. We will be right back after this. Emil Franzi's Voices of the West will be right back. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hi, this is Joe Montaigne. Every time my Uncle Willie tells me about his service in Patton's Third Army in World War II, I'm reminded of what we owe the U.S. Army. Fourteen generations of American soldiers who have courageously defended our nation. Their stories represent the best of America and should never be forgotten. Join me to help build the National Museum of the United States Army, a long overdue tribute to all American soldiers. To learn more, visit armyhistory.org. Besides bringing millions a year into this community with national and international events, the Tucson Trap and Skeet Club at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway services the local shooting sports community with a 380-acre site featuring trap, skeet, five stand, and two sporting clays fields, as well as a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, which all is available to local shooters, and soon an archery range. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com or take a drive out west of town and see it for yourself. New members or single-day use, welcome. Old Western Radio Theater every Saturday at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time only on the Voices of the West. VOW Radio. Franzi's Voices of the West. We are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, and in case you did not recognize that voice at the very end there, um, that was Lee Marvin singing Wandering a Star from the movie um, Monty Walsh. Our guests, Robert Goulet, eat your heart out. Yeah, right. Our guests are Stuart Rosebrook, editor of True West Magazine, Todd Roberts in Hollywood. His dad produced uh, the Monty Walsh pictures. And we're running down into the uh, final moments here of the program. Uh, but Lee could not sing, could he? One last quote. 
nobody could be a cowboy forever, Marty. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, I'll tell you one did. last story just for the last of it, and I've told it a thousand times, and I know. But it owns you to laugh. Um, I'm walking on the beach with Lee Marvin and my older brother, Curtis, and he knew us because he lived a few houses down in Malibu. And uh, <laughs> he says, we're walking along, and I'm so full of myself. You remember the kid on the camera boom? And uh, I go, just out of the blue, I start, we're walking along the beach, and I go, I'm a wandering star. And he all of a sudden goes, stop, stop, whoa. And he looks right at me. I'm about nine years old. And he points his finger right at me. He says, kid, I like you a hell of a lot, but don't you ever sing that song again. <laughs> that got me one of life's scariest moments. Okay, Mr. Marvin. <laughs> Stuart, do you have any uh, wrap-up thoughts here on uh, the 1970 version of Monty Walsh starring Lee Marvin? Well, I, in reflecting on the film, I, I would highly recommend everyone go back and watch it. Watch it. Uh, do a double feature. Watch it with the Tom Selleck film. Uh, I would say the same mm-hmm. thing with True Red and the updated version. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the filmmaking. Um, uh, enjoy the good writing. Um, I think that um, uh, in looking at when the awards were handed out in those days, uh, Lee Marvin and Jack Palance and the, and the, the, the acting, are very um, undervalued. I think that they, in today's world, they would have been up for some major awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's... Um, in, in that era, there was very, very few directors and, and cast have the opportunity to go on location and really um, um, work as a production team, as a crew, and you can tell the passion from craft service to the producer on that film. Everyone really took it very seriously and knew they were doing something special, and it shows almost 50 years later. You know, that, that's interesting that, that you story. bring that I really out. I appreciate that. I really do. It means a it, lot. And, um, and I know that you guys feel the same way, and it means a lot as well. Yes. Um, I would also have to say that <laughs> Lee, by himself as a person, as an actor, as a consummate professional, brought a lot to this film and, and, and studied all the great actors. Um, and I've told this story many times, but the scene on the porch prior to Chet's wedding when Lee has been groomed and is in that brand new shirt, coat, and hat, um, that is a scene that he studied um, endlessly by watching My Darling Clementine hmm. with Henry Ford mm-hmm. uh, been duded up and slicked up by the barber in the bone tong shop, as it's called, by the barber and... Um, is standing on that porch trying to figure out what to do with himself as as the morning starts to progress and there's kind of a lull in things. And Lee studied that and watched it countlessly 
uh, countless times. He had the film on reel to reel. He had it on a, a the original film. Hmm. Prior, this is all prior to VHS, and he watched it endlessly hmm. on a projector. And uh, it had it was a, it was his one of his favorite films and one of his favorite portrayals of Fonda, and he, he really valued it. And he was that's where he got his inspiration for that that scene and the, the that type of shall I say trying to find that character the other thing is is Lee did uh, very much he did this on all his films where he kind of had leeway to pick out his own outfit and he kind of created the character the way Jolons Olivier did and the way that Chaplin created the tramp from the outside in and um, he picked out the pants and um, in in the outfit that he wears most of the film but the shirt that he wears that blue and black striped on white shirt that he wears to Chet's wedding if you watch the film he basically never takes the shirt off once Chet's killed and the shirt goes from a, a shirt that fits him perfectly and is in perfect condition to a shirt that becomes ragged and ripped and torn it becomes a bandana and he keeps losing pieces of it until it's one little strip about two feet long and he ties it around his right bicep almost like a garter hmm. and until there is no cloth left it's kind of like a child in his binky mm -hmm. in his blanket it, it mm -hmm. just deteriorates and deteriorates until finally one day the mother or the one of the parents takes it and it disappears well that's what happens uh, it's a subtle thing, but you have to watch the film and be sure. looking for it. And that's him, Lee's character, Monty, not willing to let go of Chet. Even though he's gone, he knows he's not coming back. And he knows that he's in pursuit of his other best friend, Shorty, who killed him. And he's going to have to kill him. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's still not willing. He's not willing to let it go, even though he's in pursuit of of ending it all. Emotionally, he's not willing to let it go. Intellectually, he knows it, but emotionally, he doesn't know it. He's not willing to let it go. And we got to let it go. And we got to let it go now, guys. Thank you so much, man. We could do another awesome. hour, awesome. another hour talking about this, and, and uh, well, I we mean, didn't touch on hardly anything. Hardly anything. Yeah, well, yeah, well. Let, let's let's do this again, definitely in uh, a couple of months from right. now. How about that? We'll 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 set that up, right? Thank you, gentlemen. All right. I hear I hear a boy howdy on that one. So that's what we're going to do. Thank you so much, Todd. And thank you so much, Stuart, for joining us today on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Your participation has been so useful, and uh, we certainly appreciate Stuart, it. Stuart, Todd, muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. And that's going to be it for this time on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I appreciate you listening. Don't forget about our uh, old-time radio coming up, Cisco Kid and Pancho, and uh, The Adventures of the Texas Rangers, starring uh, Joel McRae. And comic books now. And comic books up on the VoicesOfTheWest.net website. In the immortal words of Leo Carrillo, I Cisco! Let's win! Let's win!
Thanks for listening to Emil Franzik's Voices of the West.